It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, Mr. Chicken Southern Gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, you could do it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the Hour of Doom. No, it's not. It's the Hour of Bloom. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an incredible interlude of interest in an insane world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find close to 700 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a codger, I'll admit it, but I've got a calling. And that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Well, that's a mouthful. I that am. Is a mouthful. Yes, awesome. I'm Amy Alton. I'm a certified nurse midwife and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And the hostess with the most is so brainy, even Stephen Hawking refuses to be photographed with her. <laughs> Amazing. Have you ever seen them both in the same photograph? No, no. that's true. Proof that's positive, true. proof positive. Together, we are the watchers on the wall, and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a recalcitrant rabbit? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when modern medicines get up and go has got up and went... What will you do? Can you save a life if the bucks stop with you? Well, you can, you know, if you have the knowledge supplies and listen to us guys. Uh-huh. That's right. Hey, what's new, Pussycat? You know, we learn as much from you as you do from us, so connect with us. It's easy. Here's a beautiful Nurse Amy to tell you how. <laughs> you can contact us by email at dr, that's Dr. Bones podcast at AOL.com. You can also find us on Facebook at our awesome group. Wonderful members, by the way. Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. We have a couple Facebook pages. That's right. Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. We have a Twitter at Prepper Show. And our YouTube channel is Dr. Bones 
Nurse Amy. And we also have a video cast at AroundTheCabin.com, the first and third Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every month. That's right. Well, you know, that is a lot of yeah. stuff that we have there for <laughs> that's everybody. That's not even all of it. <laughs> I know. That's not all. Our website at doomandbloom.net has just about everything you need to succeed, even if everything else fails. Check out our articles in leading magazines like Survival Quarterly, Backwoods Home, Prepare, Survivalist, Prepper and Shooter, Survivor's Edge, oh my gosh, just about anything. <laughs> Add in links from over a thousand great preparedness websites throughout the internet. South Korea said Friday in the news Mm -hmm. that the MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome outbreak that killed 24 people seems to have begun subsiding. Only one new case, the lowest rate of new infections on a daily basis Mm -hmm. in two weeks. This brought to 166, the total number of confirmed cases of MERS in the country since it was first confirmed to be here, to be in uh, South Korea on May 20th. That is the largest outbreak ever outside its area of origin in Saudi Arabia. This is very good news. It shows that the South Koreans have adapted in their manner of handling the outbreak, something that the U.S. did with Ebola, albeit with great difficulty. Now, remember that one patient in South Korea wound up going to four different hospitals before they figured out what his problem was. He probably infected dozens of other people, including family members, hospital roommates, and health workers. Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, being definitely airborne, has a lot of potential to become a pandemic. Skilled workers from all over the world are employed in Saudi Arabia, the area of origin, and with commercial air travel, it's not an impossibility that this disease can cause issues far away as it did in South Korea. Matter of fact, three cases in the U.S., as a matter of fact, among travelers from that area last year. I do want to say that MERS seems to affect old folks and those with chronic medical problems more than healthy young folks. So all those young people with face masks on the street in Seoul, the capital of Korea, maybe it might be a little overkill, but you know what? It only makes sense to protect yourself from any infectious disease. Now, speaking of which, are you ready to handle medical issues in times of trouble? Well, get a copy of our Amazon bestseller, The Survival Medicine Handbook, and you'll get a head start for the uncertain future. You'll get all sorts of important tips that will help you and your family stay healthy in all sorts of predicaments, and it's all in plain English. So put old Dr. Bones and lovely Nurse Amy in your survival library, head over to Amazon.com or get a personally autographed copy by going to our website at doomandbloom.net. And hey, if you love your Kindle almost as much as your iPhone, well, you can find our book in, on Amazon in digital version as well. If you bought the Survival Medicine Handbook, as a matter of fact, second edition, from Amazon, you can get a Kindle copy for only $2.99 through its Matchbook program. Check it out, and over 200, matter of fact, 220, five-star reviews at Amazon.com. Awesome. Now, another infectious disease news, in 2012, you know, I reported on the appearance of a strain of drug-resistant tuberculosis in rural parts of India. Yes, you did. Well, in the article, you know, I talked about the disease, I concerned that it could become an epidemic if it made its way, or a pandemic if it made its way to other parts of the world. Now, a report of a case of drug-resistant tuberculosis in a traveler from India has indeed arrived in the U.S., Thankfully, the patient is being treated in the NIH facility in Maryland. Hopefully, the disease won't spread 
if appropriate precautions are taking, taken. Now, this story hit home for me personally as I was exposed to tuberculosis when I worked the emergency room um, at a large city hospital in Miami. That was, gosh, during the 1980 Mariel Boatlift when Fidel Castro emptied his prisons and a large number of sick Cubans came to the United States. And I'll tell you, back then it wasn't the norm to wear a mask anytime you saw a patient. Uh, and I'll tell you, it really cost me. My TB test turned positive. I still carry evidence of it in the form of a walled-off area in my lung that you can see on chest X-ray. Now, infectious disease has always been with us. I mean, some of the most common ones, indeed, like tuberculosis, involve the lungs and airways. This is something, uh, tuberculosis is not a new thing. I mean, kings of England, uh, I know Edward VI of England, uh, back in Elizabethan times, died of uh, tuberculosis, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, an American poet, died of tuberculosis. Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp's friend, a gunslinger, uh, died of tuberculosis. Millions of people actually have died from complications of this disease. And evidence of tuberculosis has even been found in mummies from Egypt. So what is tuberculosis? Tuberculosis, that's a contagious disease. Contagious, not contagious. Contagious. Uh, <laughs> are you are you coming up with a new pronunciation? Uh, pronunciation. I know. I'll tell you. Sometimes I I watch oh TV goodness. and I hear the way people pronounce things. I'm saying, have I been mispronouncing no. this all my life? And the funny thing is, you and I both pick up on the same words. I know. So this is how we were taught in school how to pronounce the words, and now suddenly the newscasters. I don't know if they're accidentally mispronouncing and they're just moving along like that's just the way it should be. Instead of excuse, excusing themselves and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I mispronounced that. It's probably what it is. They are mispronouncing the word. Well. But it drives me crazy. It drives me nuts. And you're, both of us pick up on the same word. So it's not just me and it's not just you. Anyway, tuberculosis is caused by a bacterium called Mycobacterium tuberculosis. It affects various organs, most commonly associated with the lung, but it can actually affect female organs, bone, all sorts of places. And it's spread by air droplets from someone with the disease. So if you're in close contact with somebody with tuberculosis, you can get it, uh, as I did uh, in the emergency room, taking care of all these sick people coughing on me. (laughs) (laughs) Tuberculosis infections are treated by specific antibiotics, often taken in combination that you have to actually deal with that and take it on a daily basis for, gosh, several months. And uh, this doesn't actually kill the disease. It causes the disease to become dormant oftentimes for many years, but there are trigger events such as a major illness that may reactivate the disease and lead to major issues. Mm -hmm. Now, primary tuberculosis, the original tuberculosis, doesn't really have a lot of symptoms, but it's thought that a third of the world's population has indeed been exposed as term positive like I did. Now, in 2010, there were almost 10 million cases reported and there were 1.5 million deaths associated with the infection, mostly in third world countries. Now, we worry about a a pandemic in the future. This is a pandemic happening right now. Wow. If the appropriate antibiotics were unavailable to me in 1980, as might happen if we had hard times one day, I could have progressed to the symptomatic form of the disease. Now, symptoms symptoms of tuberculosis include coughing and wheezing, usually with blood or mucus, shortness of breath, weight loss, fevers and night sweats, fatigue, and chest pain. In the past, a person with the above was known to be suffering from consumption because their worsening weakness and their weight loss made it appear that something was indeed consuming them. 
So anyhow, cover your mouth when you sneeze and oh, certainly yeah. watch yourself around people that have anything that looks like a flu or other unusual illness, especially anybody that is coughing up blood in their phlegm. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's see. Where are we going to be in the next Where are we gonna be? few weeks? Well, we are... Uh... We always want to a few weeks, visit few months. Different, yep, different places in the I think, country. How many have we done already? I think we've done at least a half a dozen. Yeah, I think we've done six. All right. Well, the next one is next um, event. Yes, Emergency mm-hmm. Prepper Expo. Uh, that is uh, made from the company SGK Knife and Gun Show. They're getting into the prepper world, so we'll see how that expo goes. I'm excited. That will be. July 18th and 19th in what looks to be awesome Hampton, Virginia. Well, for now, us, we've been all yeah. around there. Yeah, we sure we've have. We've been to Jamestown. Um, what else is around there that we're going to go to? Williamsburg, Colonial, Colonial, Colonial Williamsburg. Williamsburg. Right? Richmond, of course, is filled with history. Of course, you know we're, yes. all, we're history nuts. So we've been all around there. It's funny, but we just hadn't gone all the way into Hampton, Virginia. Right. It's which probably been about 10 coastal. years. Coastal. It's probably been about 10 years this since we've been right there. I know, there. so I'm very excited. Uh, we will be teaching a suture class on Sunday, the 19th, July 19th at 10 a.m. at the Expo. Now, I know I had kept promising to put the link up. It is up. It is on doomandbloom.net forward slash medical classes. Good. So it is there. You can sign up. It's a great class, so if you want to learn a new ha- skill, I already have absolutely. some people signed up. Yes, absolutely. but I just put it up like Sign two up days and, ago. And you will enjoy this class. You'll learn something. It is a three-hour complete wound care class, and it's hands-on. The next place will be is Denver, Colorado, uh-huh. a one-day show, Self-Reliance Expo, on August 21st. We will also be teaching a suture class in Denver at 4 p.m. If you're around there and you want to learn something exciting. August 29th and 30th, and we've just added this one, Lawrenceville, Georgia. Near Atlanta. Yes, uh, the northeast corner, and it is run by RK Prepper Shows, and that is a two-day event. Uh, Most likely, we'll be teaching a suture class uh, Sunday morning, Mm -hmm. right, uh, on the 30th. Then... um, uh, Prepper Camp, uh, September 18th through the 20th, and October 3rd is Houston, Texas, one of our favorite places to be. That is the Self-Reliance Expo. That's also a one-day event, October 3rd. And Louisville, Kentucky, We have that's going to be a new adventure for right, us. exactly. The NPS Expo. Right, some of your family can't hail from Kentucky. Yes, they did. That's some, right. The great-grandparents. Um, October 11th and 12th is the Louisville, Kentucky. Sounds good. And most likely we'll be teaching the suture class again Sunday morning. And the reason we do Sunday morning is because that's the slowest time at the expo. And Sundays are, or excuse me, Saturdays are crazy. So the last thing we want to do is not be able to say hi and, and talk to people and answer questions. Because most likely people who are coming to the event to see us have a lot of questions that they want to talk to us about. And so we want to be available to you guys as much as possible. So that's why we do the class on Sunday morning. Because it's a slower time. And Absolutely. we're not um, disappointing a lot of people by not being able to chat with them. That's right. Exactly. By the way, Prepper Camp is in Saluda, North Carolina. Sort of in western North Carolina. So uh, if you're interested in camping out with us, well, that's going to be the place. 
Well, I guess we can say that the drought in Texas is over. A tropical storm bill drenched the Gulf Coast after the area had experienced torrential rains just a few weeks earlier and flooded the, flooded with that. You know, hurricane season is upon us, and I guess we should all be on the lookout. Even here in sunny Florida, most people are completely unprepared for the severe rain, winds, and flooding, and all sorts of crazy stuff that these storms cause. Now, of course, they can be severe. The good news is that they don't have to be life-threatening because unlike tornadoes, which pop up suddenly, hurricanes are first identified when they're hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. You can watch their development, have a good idea of how bad it's going to be, and how much time we have to get ready. So your family, however, has to have an effective plan in of action already with regards to shelter, food, power, other important issues. And if you do that, even a Category 5 storm can be just a bump in the road, not the end of the road for you, guy. Now, unlike some disaster scenarios, you can outrun one of these storms. You get enough of a head start. That That's actually one of your most important decisions. Should you hit the road, Jack? If you live on the coast or in an area that floods often, you know there are going to be rising waters. That's called the storm surge. That might just be enough of an issue to leave. The authorities issue evacuate. The good news about about the authorities, they don't have a civil defense plan, but they sure do have a hurricane plan usually. And they'll issue evacuation orders. And if you live in prefab housing uh, or near the coast, it might just be a good idea. Uh, the municipality will also often assign a, a shelter, a, a sturdy building that you can go to if you can't actually leave the area. Now, if you do choose to leave town, go as far inland as you can because hurricanes get their strength from warm water temperatures over the tropical ocean. They, they lose strength quickly as they travel over land. So that, I think, is something that's important for you to know. Now, um, this is the time to check out your bug out bag to make sure it's ready to go. Most people pack for 72 hours off the grid, but I think that number is completely arbitrary. I, be prepared for at least a week's supply of food and drinking water. I don't, I don't know why 72 hours is some magic number. It really isn't, in my opinion. In my opinion, if, if the power is going to go out, it may go out for more than three days, so have more than that available. Uh, usually, you won't be told to leave your homes, uh, and so therefore, you're probably going to stay in place. Uh, plant your planning will determine how much damage you can sustain. I mean, do you know where your house house's weak spots are. Well, I mean, do you know how much wind your structure can contain? Well, you know, down here in South Florida, since Hurricane Andrew in 1992, UE ha all new housing had to conform to 125 mile an hour uh, wind stress capacity. However, most homes and other places are made to handle only 90 miles an hour. So if the coming storm is sustained winds over that level, you might not be able to depend on the integrity of your home there. So get out of there in that case. Now, if you decide to stay, designate a safe room somewhere in the interior of the house. It should be in a part of the home most downwind from the direction the hurricane's hitting you. Figure out who's going to ride the storm with you. Plan for their special needs, of course. Make enough provisions, food, water for them, and also for animals that you might be sheltering. Move all your outdoor furniture and potted plants either inside the house or up against the outside wall. Preferably secure them with chains. Batten down the hatches. In other words, put up the hurricane shutters. And uh, you should cut down uh, tree limbs that you think might not be able to withstand the storm because those things will be missiles. Down here it's coconuts that are the cannonballs here. Um, indoor planning is important. 
communications might be having a major, major storm, have one of those NOAA weather radios, lots of fresh batteries, fill up your gas and propane tanks, uh, and turn your refrigerator freezer down to its coldest settings if a hurricane warning comes around. That way food won't spoil right away if the power fails. Make sure you know how to shut off the electricity, gas and water, not, and that other people know how to do that too. Uh, there's another kind of power you should be concerned about. In the aftermath of the storm, credit card verification might be down. Without cash, you may have no purchasing power at all. So that's a power issue that you could remedy by having some cash. Now, if you've hunkered down in your home during the storm, make sure you've got books and board games, like our board game, Doom and Bloom Survival. There's a shameless plug there. There you go. <laughs> and light sources for when the power goes down. Because kids, let's face it, they go stir-crazy when stuck inside, especially if they don't have TVs or computers in service. And this is where you might be thankful for having some of those handheld gaming devices. Now, make sure you talk, talk to them about the current storm, or the coming storm in advance. This will give everybody an idea of what to expect and keep fear down to a minimum. And maybe give the kids some responsibility. You know, give them the opportunity to pack their own bag or select games to play. They'll keep their minds busy and their nerves calm. So that's a summer issue, right? Hurricanes, that's oh, definitely an issue for us down here, summer and late, well, early fall. And There there have already been a, a few so far, and, and it's very early, honey. <laughs> I dread to find out what's going to happen in August and September. Well, I do have another summer issue. You know that summer, with school done for the year, many of our nation's families are going to be tra- traveling on vacation to the beach, lake, uh, waterfront. I mean, it's it's also a season where a lot of mishaps happen, and one of the most heartbreaking is the accidental drowning. Now, according to a 2004 report from the World Health Organization, it's the third leading cause of death from injury. And there were close to uh, 4,000 drownings annually in the United States between the years 2005 and 2009, with about five times as great non-fatal injuries as well. Of course, some of these injuries, because of the lack of oxygen involved brain damage, could be long-term effects. Drowning is seen much more often in males. The younger the person, the higher the rate of risk. It's the second leading cause of death from injuries uh, in children 1 to 14 years of age and surpassed only by car wrecks. Um, There are a number of factors I think you need to know which increase the risk of drowning. Of course, if you can't swim, poor swimming swimming ability, can't swim, your chances of drowning increase. Bad supervision, that is one thing that is a real killer, especially of kids. Remember, the drowning happens quickly. doesn't have to have a lot of noise associated with it. So even the presence of lifeguards may not save you on the beach. And unsupervised small children even die in the bathtub. So, you know, you definitely have to watch that pool, even, even if it's a kiddie pool. You know, home swimming pools are actually the most likely places that young people drown. Most adult drownings occur in wilderness or boating natural settings. Barriers, or lack of them, that are a big issue. Pool fences that separate the pool from the yard to reduce the child's risk of drowning by 83%. Life jackets for boating. Uh, boating is very important. 88% of boating deaths by drowning involve people who weren't wearing life vests. And by the way, speaking of boating and, uh, and pool deaths, the majority of deaths by drowning in adolescents and adult in, adults involve impaired judgment and coordination caused by, you know what, drinking. Now, here are some things that you need to know to keep your family safe from drowning. you got to take swimming lessons, for goodness sake. 
Don't go into swimming depth water if you don't know how to swim. Swimming lessons were provided by many municipalities throughout the country, even for young kids. So, so are CPR classes, by the way. So these are very important when it comes to aiding drowning victims. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, keep strict supervision on minors. Children in the water should always be supervised by a responsible, sober adult. For preschool children, the adult should be close enough to touch the child, not be involved in any other activity. The buddy system is very important. Even adults should always swim with other people. Um, on the beach, you have to beware of rip currents. Uh, make sure you know the meaning of, of advisory flags on the beaches to tell you conditions. High waves, discolored water, debris, channels of water moving away from shore. This is a sign of possible rip currents. And if you're caught in one, don't fight it. Swim parallel to the shore, not towards it, until you're free of the current and then diagonally towards the beach. Of course, foam, inflatable toys, noodles, water wings, they're not an acceptable substitute for life vests, especially on boating trips. Be firm, even with adults, about using the right equipment. Four-sided pool fencing, four feet high, high latch, lock. That's the safest way to avoid small children falling or jumping into the pool, getting in trouble. And don't leave their toys near the pool after swimming. You might go in, they might be out looking for their toy, fall right into the pool. Be aware of the weather. Thunder showers often whip up the water with strong winds. That increases the risk of drowning. Also, physical condition. If you're not physically fit, you have to remember that swimming involves exertion. Make sure you're up to the challenge. For goodness sake, don't drink alcohol. I'm not going to tell you why. If you don't know why, you have a lot to learn, buddy. Don't hyperventilate. This is something you might not know, though. Taking rapid deep breaths for a contest to see who can stay underwater longest. I remember that. May cause a blackout. Something that you I used do, to do that, too. Right. Something you... <laughs> So bad. But apparently it causes people to black out sometimes. That's something you don't want to happen when you're under the water. Well, I think both of us must have gotten very lucky. That's huh? right. Now, in the wilderness, be ready, be wary at river crossings. Fast-moving water can knock you off your feet, even if it's just a foot deep. Now, at the beach or in the wilderness, you sure might encounter a distressed person in the water. Of course, you're going to want to jump in and help. But remember, the hazards that got that person in trouble, they're probably still there. They'll likely be panicked panicking, flailing around to avoid injury and reduce the risk that you'll become the next victim. Remember these words. Reach, throw, row, go. One, reach out to the person with the sticker or. Two, throw, throw the person a lifeline, life preserver, other floating object. Row out to the person in a canoe or other boat if it's available, but go into the water only when there's no other option. So I think this is very, very important. Also remember what we call the drowning chain of survival. Following this series of steps is going to give you the best chance of a good outcome after this type of uh, accident. One, shout for help. Two, remove the person from the water in a safe manner, just like I said just a second ago. In normal times, call emergency services. Begin CPR using both chest compressions and rescue breathing. I know they say chest compressions now if you're not training CPR, but chest compressions alone are not going to save a drowning victim. Now, if available, use an automatic external defibrillator, an AED, and assist in transport to a modern medical facility. Let's face it, outcomes are going to worsen significantly if you're in an austere environment. So, 
That's what I have to say about that. You know, it's time to say a great big thank you to all the great networks that carry our show, especially the Prepper Broadcasting Network, the USA Emergency Broadcasting Network, Survival Central Radio, Shake and Wake Radio, AroundTheCabin.com. You can listen to our archive audio podcast whenever it's convenient for you just by clicking the podcast button on the blue toolbar at doomandbloom.net. And we want to thank our listeners for their kind words and support for our mission. That's to put a medically prepared person in every family. Thank you for your interest in our books and DVDs and for checking out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. There's something there for every need at a reasonable price, so take a look. Fill those holes in your medical storage. If you've got the time to put all this stuff together on your own, don't buy it from us, you lazy (laughs) so-and-so. Just get the stuff on the list we freely publish. Otherwise, get a kit designed by a doctor and a nurse practitioner. Absolutely, and I have some exciting items that I'm going to be adding soon. I am custom making Nurse Amy salves. Yay! Wow. I have my first one is Heavenly Healer. It's an all-purpose salve with calendula, plantain, white sage, yarrow, or yarrow. Again, it's <laughs> depends on how you pronounce it. Geranium, olive oil, beeswax with essential oils of lavender and thyme and i have a chest rub called breathe better and that has coconut oil beeswax essential oils of eucalyptus camphor clove peppermint sweet orange rosemary and wintergreen and the last one is called aches away again it's a salve with olive oil beeswax arnica st john's wort goldenrod wintergreen and camphor so Hopefully those will be in the store soon, and they will be included in the family medical bag. Hey, we're thrilled to welcome a good friend to our show for the first time. Her name is Tara Dodrill. Tara is a preparedness journalist and the author of the book, Power Grid Down, Prepare, Survive, and Thrive When the Lights Go Out. Here's part two of our interview with Tara Dodrill. Let me ask you a little bit about EMPs. You mentioned them earlier, but I'll bet there are very few people that know a lot about an EMP. Can you give us some basics of what happens in an EMP and sure. uh, what some of the consequences? If there was an EMP attack, the common scenario that's debated about right now would be, you know, perhaps from North Korea. Do they do they not have the capacity for an EMP attack? And some people say no, they don't have a long-range missile, but you could have something on a boat that comes close enough that could cause, trigger an EMP event. Might not be strong enough to take down the entire power grid. That would maybe take a coordinated effort. That is why there was um, two North Korean ships that were very close to Florida last summer and earlier this spring that prompted a lot of concern. Um, but when an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse, when that happens, any modern or sensitive electronics would, would be fried. If that were to occur, it's not that you can go and fix something, but you have to have the parts to fix them. So like your car. If you have a car, some people say pre-1970, some say 1950, something without all the modern gadgetry in it, it would probably maybe be hardened against an EMP. It would depend. But the pulse price-sensitive equipment, and it wouldn't be usable. So you couldn't go to your local AutoZone and pick up more parts. It doesn't have to be necessarily connected to a car. Equipment in a hospital, you know, an x-ray machine or whatever it might be. So if an EMP attack were to occur, just like a solar flare, we could be jettisoned back to an 1800s existence. It not only would change life drastically in a second, 
It would also make us vulnerable because of our military and um, the equipment they have, even being able to get home. If we have military overseas, there's a sense of equipment in our naval ships. Airplanes definitely have sensitive equipment. There are roughly 7,000 various types of aircraft flying over the United States at any moment, and only Air Force One has been hardened against an EMP attack. So if you're on an airplane and there is an EMP attack, you know, it's going to crash, which will affect sadly all the lives of the people that are in the airplane. But when those planes crash, there will be fires. And when there are fires, you would need to call, you know, the fire department. Well, you can't call if there's no phones. Their radios aren't going to work. And many fire departments also have engines with sensitive equipment, so they couldn't respond. The EMS couldn't respond. So an EMP attack would probably be, in my opinion, one of the most devastating types of man-made disasters that we could face. I mean, you would literally be on your own, and uh, food being delivered, you know, via semi-truck to your grocery store, that's not going to happen. Medication being delivered, you know, would not occur. There would no longer be refrigeration, so medications that need to be kept in the fridge, you know, those would also go bad. The loss of life from an EMP attack you know, it would be astronomical both initially because of, you know, accidents and lack of first responders, but within the first several weeks, the first several months, the population, depending on the estimate, could be hit at 50 to 80% decline because yeah. of a lack of available of services and equipment and food. Well, let's say this happens. The average person, what should they do and what should their plan of action be if one of these events occurs, either the EMP or the solar flare really does damage? What should their plan of action be? It happens. Now what do they do? If you just take a little tablet with you or your phone, spend an entire day and kind of gauge how many times you use something that Mm -hmm. involves electricity or Wi-Fi, and that will give you an idea of how incredibly reliant we are upon it. And then you can filter out what's essential. You know, text messaging, playing on Facebook, not essential. But you go to the refrigerator, get something to eat. And, well, that would no longer be available. So how can we, you know, preserve our food and get our food, you know, without the use of others? Food and water will be, of course, the immediate means. And location varies. If you live in an urban area, that would be the most difficult way to prepare yourself. You, you don't have much storage space. You don't have access to ponds or streams. You can't build an ice house, which actually is incredibly easy and affordable. We are doing that on a new dream property. An Amish friend showed me how to do it. As, as off-grid as you can be, and you don't have to live off-grid necessarily right this very moment. You just need to be able to have some resources that you can use should the power go out. Power tools will be wonderful to save, but hand tools will be better. And we have Faraday cages. And that is one way you can try to harden any essential electronics, you know, against an EMP attack. And a Faraday cage, some people use the old-fashioned metal trash cans. Being a cage, you don't have to have something that is fully encased like that. You know, a a chain-link fence could be made into a Faraday cage. But when you put something in a Faraday cage, you need to have, say, the old-fashioned metal trash can. And we have our emergency radios in there so we can communicate, and we also have some low-tech versions of communication systems because you will not necessarily all be home when something like this happens. So we have some symbols and spray paint and a series of handkerchiefs and different collars in our bug-out bag and in the cache. 
so that if you somebody comes home, the other person isn't there, they see a red handkerchief, they know we've gone to place B, and not to wait there, you know, and hunt. And on a normal route home, if they see this symbol spray-painted on the sidewalk, they'll know we've gone Route B through the woods to get home. So a lot of that is pre-coordination that you would have to do to communicate with your loved ones because if you all aren't home, you know, that would be a first concern for any parent or grandparent. So we keep um, radios in a Faraday cage, and whatever you put inside the Faraday cage, it needs not to touch metal. They're very simplistic and inexpensive to make. If you just take a cardboard box and cut it apart and lay a piece of cardboard on the floor, I put our radios in there, in their box, not touching each other. And we also have some the same type of radios for everybody in our family. And I like to call it a tribe instead of a mutual assistance group. I kind of like that phrasing a bit better. And um, we all have the same radios so that we can communicate. I don't know if this will work. It was suggested by a prepper that I know, but we wrap them in a um, gallon Ziploc baggie and then an aluminum mm-hmm. foil about 10 different times with the batteries the same way separate. You know, and we also put an electronic tablet in there with several jump drives. On those jump drives, we've saved our pertinent information, uh, shot records, photos and addresses, social security numbers, any important information that may be useful. We also have a hard copy, of course, but we have um, those in a printer safe. So those are all in a Faraday cage, and they're all separate. We just line the cage with cardboard and separate in between each layer and put the lid on. Microwave ovens can also make very good Faraday cages, a great place to buy packages of batteries and leave them in the battery packets and put them in there. They're picking up uh, microwaves, the yard sales, real cheap, whether or not they work, that's a great place to store some things that you would like to make sure that you might be able to have use after a Faraday cage. The, um, I, in the buildings, you can buy in your backyard, like from Lowe's, the metal ones, if you use those, you can put a piece of chain link fence and put your four-wheeler in there so that you might have a mode of transportation, harden it as best you can against a Faraday cage. Being able to move about could be extremely important because most of the vehicles, you know, won't work. You have to people with old-fashioned cars that might, but then getting gasoline for them, and you can put stabilizer in gasoline and try to keep it a bit longer but that will eventually run out. You know, a lot of people that I know have gone to diesel and are making their own biodiesel as a way to make sure they have transportation after an EMP or some other type of power grid down scenario. Um, it's not difficult either. It's not my forte. It's a bit sciencey, but it's something that you could also make and safely store. Taking an inventory of your exact needs, that's things you use on a daily basis and how many of them require electricity or took electricity or an outside source to get to you is a great place to start and just make a list and then start looking for ways that you can save those or provide them for yourself. And that would be where I would, would start. Otherwise, it's, it, you know, it, it's very overwhelming. I want to go back to transportation. I know you were talking about that. Now, a lot of people may stay in place and a lot of people may want to go elsewhere Tell me a little bit about some of the factors that might go into determining an ideal retreat, in your opinion. Using my real estate background, uh, our cousin owns a real estate agency here in our county, and she talked me into doing that. So we have a lot of, we're in a rural area, and a lot of peppers always laugh. People in the city say, we'll just flee to the country. Well, in our nice little community, there will probably be men or women on the county line with barricades saying you're not coming in. So flee to the country is, you know, never a good idea. Not everybody can afford to go buy a a perfect retreat. That's something that perhaps you could partner with somebody in a rural area where you can trade something with them to have a spot at their house. Some people go in together on one. 
But when you're thinking about the perfect retreat, uh, you don't need a ton of acreage. A lot of acreage is great, but you have to be able to defend it, and you don't want to spend so much of your prepping budget on land that you also can't stock and grow the items you need. You know, five to ten acres, you know, really should be enough, especially if you use container gardening or secret garden of survival, survival forcing method of Rick Austin. He grows everything that family of four can need on an acre, acre and a half plot. So you don't need a ton of acreage. You do need more for livestock. And when you're thinking about livestock, especially if you're not used to dealing, living in agricultural community or lifestyle, not just, you know, any land will work. You really need somebody who specializes in agricultural land to help you if you're unfamiliar. If you see a big open field, you don't know um, much about it. You didn't know if that will grow hay. Is the pond on there man-made? Is it spring-fed? The creek you see that's flowing water, is it really a creek year-round? Because that's not always the case. You know, you want a water source. You want some area that could definitely be used for pasture and or growing. Our house, our new house, is actually going to be two-sided earth berm, which helps with cooling. So if you can find a property where you could do that, we could do an earth berm on two or three sides. That will help with the temperature in the summertime when there is no power grid because of the heat. And it's also helpful from a defensive aspect as far as anybody being able to try to sneak on you from, you know, from behind. It lessens that. If you're going to build, building materials is something I go in great detail in the book. There's multiple ways that you can do it that's earth-friendly and inexpensive. There's paper creed and straw houses and all these things that are, are really intriguing to do. But you also need to think about fire. Um, and I think that's an aspect of preparedness that's kind of glazed over a little bit. You think, I'm going to get this cabin in the woods, and it's great. Well, I live in the woods, and there's lots of cabins here in the Hocking Hills. And my husband goes on probably three brush fires a week during the summertime. And if there's uh-huh. no fire department, you know, your perfect retreat and all your supplies, you know, could be gone in a matter of hours. A nice windy day, and somebody oh, yeah. started a fire because, you know, they're cooking outdoors, aren't used to it. And like I said, a, a plane crash or somebody trying to use candles, anytime there's a power outage, there's always a house fire somewhere. And you have a lot of people who are panicked and aren't used to doing a camping or off-grid lifestyle. And fires will spread quickly when there aren't the first responders, you know, to battle them. So I would suggest concrete block and a metal roof. It really makes your house a lot less flammable. And taking a little bit of fire training. Um, there, our country has more volunteer fire departments and paid departments. I'm sure that they would be more than happy to accept new volunteers. And if you don't have the time or don't think that's for you, you can still go take some training classes at a community college and learn some skills and purchase some equipment that you could have at your retreat to help protect your home and your barn and, and your property. Um, an Indian pack is what it's called. That's probably definitely not, in, you know, politically correct, but that's what it's called. It's like a bug-out bag, but it holds water, and it has a hose on it with a manual sprayer. And those would be wonderful to have two or threes and what they call a beater and a shovel. And you can do a trench line near your house, and you can use that with water And because you're not going to have a hose to turn on. You would have water for a while, depending on where you lived, and when, but when the pumps quit working at your local water reserve, um, you're not going to have water in your faucet or water for your hose anymore. So thinking um, how you can help protect your own land and your crops. If a fire takes away your house, you have nothing left. It kills your livestock or your crops, but your house is saved, you still might not survive. So when you build, choose your materials as fire retardant as possible. 
And there are pumps that you can buy, manual pumps that aren't very expensive. You've been listening to the to, Doom and Bloom uh, Hour, Medical Preparedness Experts, Dr. Bones, and Chris Haney. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. And they do spontaneously combust. You don't want to stick them right next to each other. About a foot apart. And um, so your hay bales catch on fire and you think, oh, I can take care of this in this little bit of time. And you may very well be wrong. But if it's windy, it could blow into your barn or onto your field. So you need to practice these drills with fire and anything else that you might be doing to make sure that... Um, it works as smoothly as you think it will, and more often than not, it won't. And the time to find out where you need to practice more or change something is now, before disaster strikes, instead of later, when you are very worried in your life and your family's life depend on it, you need to practice, like you go out and practice your target shooting. Um, you, know, you need to drill and practice on everything. That's what that's what weekends are for. It can be a fun family activity. <laughs> that's right. You know, Zoom and Zoom, you get out there and you practice have kids or former athletes like me that's competitive the golf, you can you can get the buckets up there quickest. You can start the fire yeah. quickest. I mean, you can make it a fun weekend and have food and drinks at the end of it. But for heaven's sake, you have to practice. You know what? You know what you're doing. But with the with the retreat, you really need to think. Besides all the land aspects, um, if you're new to that, you need to talk to a local farmer or get a local agent who specializes in agricultural land. You don't have to tell them you're a prepper. And give up off that. You know, you can just tell them right. really, and they want to have livestock, and and say you want to be off grid, earth friendly. You know, whatever. But um, sure, you get there. You know, you need you need to be able to practice, and and you want to practice not just um, you know with with fire skills, but you have horses, and you think that's a great mode for transportation, and it, and it will be. There's a guy now that I've seen last week from the prepper camp this year, and, and that's going to be the topic. These people have to speak from horseback, and I got volunteers for that, and I'm very much looking forward to it. But um, so you think, okay, I've got horses, I'm going to have a way to get around. And like you said, some people might not want to leave where they are. And during the need disaster, you probably wouldn't. But if it's a solar flare or an EMP that takes in the power grid, we're not talking days or months for that to be repaired. And typical estimates between FEMA and non government experts and common sense from research. You can be looking at two to three years. So during the course of the two to three years, you know, you, you may leave your property. Unless you're James Wesley Rawls, you're set up with an awesome compound, you don't have to. Most people are going to want to or need to leave. You know, you may have, my mother lives in another county. I want to be able to get her here. So um, horses are a great mode of transportation and a wagon. But when you have horses, you're going to need to have to learn some basic first aid skills for them like you have for your family. Can you shoe horses? And can you shoot them without modern techniques? There's an Amish community where I live, and that is a wealth of information to go down and, and watch Ezra shoe horses the old-fashioned way and learn how to do it and to buy the tools. And um, so, you know, everybody in your family or your group really needs to have a set of skills and then cross-train because Billy Bob, who does the horseshoeing, could get the flu and die. Could, you know, whatever could happen. If he's the only one who knows how to shoe horses or my husband's the only one who knows firefighting, we're going to be in really bad shape if something happens to them a month in, two months in, or even six months in. 
So practicing your skills and cross-training those skills and drilling um, after you make your preparedness list, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's just really important. Buying stuff is great, but knowing how mm-hmm. to use it and use, your, and use skills and work with others are, are even more important because after a power grid down scenario, there's going to be a rebuilding phase. And uh, so you need to, to focus on maybe – I have a chapter in the book about post-power grid down careers. And if you're a stockbroker, there's not going to be much use for you in a, in a life <laughs> after the power grid's down, you know, at least for about yeah. three years. And, you know, Justin Bieber might be singing for a supper, but I don't know how much anybody's been willing to pay for that when, you know, <laughs> in a scenario like that. So but if you – but thinking about some things you do that are a hobby or fun or something your grandma can teach you, being able to sew something. Um, there, I know, I went through a whole list and did some research, and that was one of my favorite chapters in the book. Uh, you know, blacksmithing, um, butchering, all these different skills. People oh, are, sure. so, are so Raise, reliant right. Raising upon. Raising chickens. Exactly. Uh, being a beekeeper. I mean, so many different things. Of course, gardening. And anybody mm-hmm. who can has a green thumb or can figure out how to grow food in the area that they, they live is going to be precious. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Most of, you know, most of Shirley said, well, you know, medical skills. I mean, that's, if you are a rural prepper, and it would be wonderful to – prepping partnerships is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So – where are we lacking in a way to connect with somebody, even if you broach it slowly over time, thinking they're not a prepper, but they have a skill that could be useful, and talking to them, and even just you know, give them a card, and if you decide that you're willing to say that you're a prepper at some point in time, if their skill is as useful, say, so you know what, you might think I'm nuts, but if, you know, the end of the world, we know what happens, you and your family can come to my house because you're a surgeon. You're a vet. You're something. You're, you have a skill that we need. We will take you in. Come get to us. And, um, and medical is really where I think of that the most. I'm thinking, okay, there's two nurses in our group, and that is wonderful. But who are you willing to take in and why? Because that will be an emotional, you know, emotional toll that will take on people. You can't take everybody in. Everybody's had the same opportunity to learn and prepare. Um, so giving a can of food to somebody every day isn't going to keep them alive and it will lessen your family or tribe's sense of survival. But you're a human being, and we're Christians. How do you draw that line on charity? When you have enough, you want to share. So there's, you know, there's an emotional aspect of prepping that my husband, Bobby, and I have, have talked about you know, multiple times. And that's something you think about, too, in a power grid down scenario, because it, it will happen. Unless you live very, very far away secluded in the woods, you, you know, there will be people that you will see that will you know, come and begging and be distraught and young children and the person you sat next to at church or your child's teacher, you know, your child mentioned about prepping at school, they came to your house because they're starving. Those, how you're going to deal with those emotional aspects is something that all preppers should talk about just as much as every other aspect of, of prepping when they sit down and decide how to spend their budget and how they're going to drill and practice this weekend you know, how are we going to handle outsiders that need help, you know, and, and to have a have an idea and plan of what you're going to do because that would, thinking about that is, is upsetting because you know you, you're not going to be able to help everybody and help yourself. I try to do my part through uh, blending my journalism and my education background and just try to help educate others and make them aware, strangers and family and friends, to avoid the number of people who are going to be panicked and destitute after something bad happens.
Well, you certainly have a wealth of information, and you impart that in Power Grid Down, Prepare, Survive, and Thrive After Lights Go Out. We're running out of time, and so I want you to tell people how we can find out more about your book, and uh, how can we get a copy hot off the press? Wonderful. Well, as I said, I'm going to do the re-release. I added on to it, and it me done this weekend. It is for sale on Amazon in paperback form and in Kindle. Soon it will be in an ebook. As soon as I have this one added on to and completely perfect, I am going to try to finish working on how to raise a self-reliant child. I'm hoping to have that out before Prepper Camp, which is September 20, 18th to the 20th this fall. So I'm hoping to have that book released also on Amazon. You can find out more about the book. I do have some excerpts of the book, including the portion about the uh, terrorism attack on the substation in Arizona. On my blog, it's just simply thepreparedfamily.org. You can find me on Twitter and Google Plus and Facebook. I'll just I type it in my name, Tara Dodrell. You can come out and see me and everybody else who's very excited about preparedness at Prepper Camp this fall down in Saluda, North Carolina. Yeah, well, we're going to be there, too. We're going to have a great time. Looking so forward Looking to forward it. Looking forward to it. And, uh, we I, know, I'm so, I know. I'm so glad you're coming. Experience. Oh, that's you will great. love well, Prepper Camp. I wish everybody in America could go. It, it, nobody wanted to leave. Everybody had such <laughs> a good time, and you felt like you knew each other forever. And everybody just kind of chipped in and helped this person, that person. The um, people who attended were like instant best friends. You just didn't want to leave. You have the perfect but, community already set up. Everyone had all their tents and their yeah, perfect. sleeping bags yeah, everything's, and a bunch everything's of food. Everything all set, yeah. We had, there were sun ovens. There was all kinds of prepping uh, supplies there already. Well, Tara Dodrill, <clears throat> author of Power Grid Down, Prepare, Survive, and Thrive After the Lights Go Out, and the author of the upcoming book, How to Raise a Self-Reliant Child. I'm thank looking you, forward to that. Thank one, you so especially. much for coming on the show. Thank we you, appreciate Tara. it. Thank you, guys, for having me. I will see you in salute in a couple months. Awesome. Good. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have for this week. Make sure you check out our new show with Charlie and Courtney Hogwood, Barely Prepared, and it is funny. So if you have a funny bone in you somewhere, check it out on YouTube. It's called Barely Prepared. <laughs>